reading from Galatians chapter 2, uh, verses 11 through to 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when he, they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Well, good morning. All right, so we are in Galatians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles with you, open to that passage. Lorraine has just read our passage for today. I need to give us a little bit of an update. We, uh, we had a snow day last Sunday. It was the first time in the history of the Rock Church in eight years where we bailed. Right? We, we basically said, yeah, too much snow. Um, getting into the back of the ledge, getting in the side doors here would have been uh, very difficult, and we were also concerned for some of you. But So we, we, uh, we are going to be going into this passage today, but just as a bit of a recap, you'll remember that two weeks ago, the beginning of this chapter is the story of Paul and Barnabas and Titus. And they go to Jerusalem from Galatia, from the churches in Galatia. They go up to Jerusalem because uh, there's a big, big concern going on in the church. It's the early days of the church. Churches have been planted. And there's this challenge going on between the Jewish believers who've got an awful lot of customs from the Old Testament that God has given to them and these new Gentile Christians who are coming to faith in Christ. Gentile simply meaning anybody other than Jewish people, right? Every other nation, tongue, and tribe that is coming to faith in Christ. Judaizers, they, were, they are called today men from Jerusalem who were still holding on to the law that God had given to them, had come down to the churches that Paul had planted and were saying, listen, this is great news that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. That's awesome. Jesus is the only way and all that. They were all behind that, but there's a problem. There's a problem. In order to be a real Christian, you need to be like us. You need to be Jewish. And in particular, men, you need to be circumcised. This is the teaching that Paul and Barnabas and Titus, being a Greek who is not Jewish, Go to Jerusalem to settle. Why did they need to go settle this? Because Paul is very concerned about the gospel. The gospel is at stake. 2,000 years ago, the gospel being faith in Christ alone is what gives you salvation. We cannot work our way up to God's approval and acceptance, which is what the people of Israel thought, even though God never really put it that way, but they thought through the law that, oh, good, you gave us the Ten Commandments, you gave us the law, good, we know what we need to do. Thank you, God, we'll take it from here. And they did their very best to keep the laws. But the point of the law that God gave to the people of Israel was to actually make a certain point to them that most missed. And the point was, you can't do it. (laughs) You cannot perfectly keep the law. And they would try, and they would try, and they would try. And yet even the most faithful Pharisee, the most faithful Jew, would have recognized, would have realized one very important thing. And that was, even if I have kept a lot of the best of my ability, and there was one man who came to Jesus, remember he was a Pharisee, he was a rich young ruler, and Jesus said, have you kept this? And he went, yep, yep, yep. And Jesus didn't question him. It was as if he did keep the law perfectly, but then Jesus said, one thing that you lack. 
go and sell everything that you have and then come and follow me. And he couldn't do it. But most faithful Jews in the day would have recognized this. They would have recognized that no matter how faithful I was to the law, there was still this time of year called the Passover where an atonement needed to be made for my sins. A sacrifice needed to be taken place. So no matter how faithful I was, the law could not save me because I can't keep it. And so this was the challenge that was before Paul and Barnabas and Titus as they went up. The great news of that meeting in Jerusalem in that day is, is, is so important to us today. We are here today, friends, believers and followers of Jesus Christ and the one true gospel, partly because of that meeting. Because the apostles, the capital A apostles in Jerusalem, whom the Judaizers were saying, yeah, Paul, you're a small A apostle. You're really not. Like, you're, you're a Johnny-come-lately. These guys in Jerusalem, they've got it straight. I... No. When they met together and Paul said, this is my gospel, this is what we've been preaching, the apostles in Jerusalem said, that's the gospel. And they agreed. And they made a covenant together that that, okay, here's what's going to happen. We agree with you. Now, Paul, you, you need to go to the Gentiles. Peter, you need to go to the Jewish people. And it was settled on that day. So in both cases, in both places, Paul's primary concern and focus is the gospel. And in this story today, the focus is on justifications. The first time that we hear this word in the letter to the Galatians. How our salvation and faith is based on Jesus plus nothing. Justification by faith alone in Christ. And then how we walk in line, in step with Jesus Christ. And he will show us that in the negative here first. How not to walk in step with the gospel. So this is our our little byline I want to give to you today. You might want to copy it down. I think it might actually be in your notes. You can walk a very straight line. You can be walking a very straight line and yet still be out of step with Jesus. Early on in the series, I said, listen, the truth is we're all recovering Pharisees. All of us have this tendency to want to go, okay, okay, I got Jesus, I got Jesus. Now, what do I need to do to get God's approval and his acceptance? Nothing. Nothing, but we... We, we lean back into that. We fall back into that for all kinds of reasons. So this is quite an awkward tiff, isn't it, today? You heard what Lorraine read. It's quite the awkward tiff between Paul. Two men, pillars of the early church, they have this very public confrontation. A public confrontation, and I'll probably bring it up a little later, that I doubt very much would happen in most of our churches today. Sometimes it happens online today, but it doesn't happen much in the church And I say pillars because that's exactly who these two guys are. And we're talking Peter and Paul. We're talking like the two most prominent men in the book of Acts. When you read the book of Acts, you see that Peter, the one who denies Jesus, you know, foot and mouth disease guy, he's the one who preaches the most amazing sermon of all time. 5,000 men plus women and children on that day come to faith in Jesus Christ, are cut to the heart, and the church is born in Acts 2 because of the preaching of Peter. And the first nine and a half, almost ten chapters in the book are about Peter and John, and the ministry of Peter is front and center. Then there's the dramatic Damascus Road experience. The Pharisee of Pharisees, the Hebrew of all Hebrews, Paul is on his way to Damascus to wipe out these, this sect, these Christians, these people of the way, and he comes face to face with Jesus Christ. Face to face with Jesus Christ. And he's overcome. He's blinded. And the rest of the book is really about the ministry of Paul. 
And so these are the two pillars, the two amazing guys in this, in this particular book. And so as we read two weeks ago, their personal callings and ministry was established in, and affirmed by the leaders in Jerusalem. Paul was to take the gospel to the Gentile world and Peter to the Jews. I've titled this message today, you might see it in your notes, Walking the Gospel Line. <laughs> and I want to show you three things today. Number one, table etiquette. Table etiquette. Number two, Paul's justification. And number three, our justification. So let's reread verses 11 and 12 today where it says this. But when Cephas, Peter's Greek name, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So, I mean, truly, verse 11 has to be shocking. It has to be shocking. Paul is reporting. He's talking about a time when he was in Galatia. He was in the church in Antioch when, when Peter came to Antioch. And Paul's there. Peter's there. They're, they're ministering to the, the Gentiles in this community. They're having a family church potluck. And Peter's there. And he's sitting at a table full of Gentile believers. As he's been doing for weeks, months, we don't know exactly how long, but he's been there a while, and he's doing what he would normally do, eating with these people. And I think the first thing we should note is this. This is really important, really important. We highlight these things once in a while because they're so important about our scriptures, about what we believe as Christians. This is the kind of story that you're only going to find in the Bible, in the Christian scriptures. You're not going to find this in the Koran. You're not going to find this in the teachings of any deity or Scripture that we know today. It's not the common practice of scriptures trying to promote the perfection of their deity and their prophets to talk about fights between two people or about one particular apostle, capital A dude like Peter, who's doing this terrible thing. He's like a bigot. He's discriminating. He's pulling away from people. This is the kind of thing that you only see in the Christian scriptures. It's important for us to see that because see, here's the deal. The one thing we know about ourselves as Christians is we're not born good. We're sinners. We're okay with making the point that there it is. Even the guys who are the pillars of the church sinned after Jesus, after preaching amazing sermons. And they had a fight. They had a literal fight. And so why is this all? Why do we? Well, because we have the gospel, right? We can look at these things and we can say, well, just because Peter and Paul had this fight and there's a problem, actually, this is the benefit. This is the beauty of the gospel. They're continuing to preach the gospel to each other rather than go, well, that's it. You know, Peter, like, we need to boot him out of the church, man. Like, he's just terrible, right? No, Paul's doing this. He's confronting him to his face. Why? He loves him. He also loves all the people that are in the room, but he loves his brother. He wants to set it straight. So Paul tells us exactly what Peter's offense was. His offense was he pulled away from the table. There's a lot to this that we're going to see today. It's not simply uh, fear and, ooh, I'm sitting with the wrong people. He pulled away from the table. Suddenly Peter decides he needs to sit at another table during this family meal. But Paul isn't fooled. He isn't fooled by this. He's sitting by, and everybody's greeting each other, and he's looking over at the table. Peter's been sitting with Gentiles for weeks, months, as I've said, and all of a sudden, the James gang arrives, right, coming down from James from Jerusalem. 
these Jewish Pharisees that are apparently Christians, and they walk into the room, and all of a sudden Peter's like, uh-oh, I need to get up and maybe go over to the door and greet them and go, hey guys, how you doing? Listen, there's a table over here, nobody's sitting here. Let's sit here. Just us. Paul's not fooled. I'll tell you what, nobody else in the room is either. Right? Nobody else in the room is fooled. People are going, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Paul is not fooled, and he calls him out on it. He says, look, before the James gang showed up, Peter, you were more than happy to be having fellowship with a table full of Gentiles. And so, again, we don't know for sure, but maybe he saw Peter glance over at the door and see them come in and, and go, boy, you know, this is not going to be good. I, I, these guys, they know who I am, and they know who these people are, and I need to move, and I need to get away from this table. And so Paul saw one very important thing in Peter's eyes. He didn't really see bigotry or discrimination, although it's there. He saw fear. That's what the Scripture tells us. He saw fear in his eyes. So I want us to see a couple of important things here that tell us why Paul was so angry. First, I I know that when you come to passages like this or stories like this, I have anyway, maybe I'm just different than the rest of us in the room, but, you know, when I look at this, I think of movies I've seen, you know, I I know I've, I I can't remember the name of the movie, but there's a movie where it's it's kind of a preppy college and there's a bunch of kind of entitled white boys, you know, with their blazers on sitting at the table, and then there's this young black American man who walks into the room and he's got his food and he's coming over to the table and they, they give him that kind of look like, don't sit here right? And, and so he's like, uh-oh, and then he goes somewhere else, you know, and he sits down. And maybe in the movie or in the story, there's one white boy who will go over and befriend him, and you got this, this, this story of redemption, and it's great, it's all the rest of it, but that's not what's going on here. It's not exactly the same. You know, we, we, we know that from history, Rosa Parks, uh, her she died in 2005, the, the, the black woman who uh, decided in Montgomery, Alabama, to walk onto a bus, and rather than go to the back where she was supposed to sit, she decided to sit in the seats up front with all the white people. Well, that created quite a stir, right? That's not the same picture either. There's so many in our culture of pictures like that. Here's what I want you to see. This is important. It's very important as we get to our conclusions today about the table. It's a little bit like this. Not quite, but think about it. It's a little bit like Peter sitting at a table of 100% black men and women. It's a little bit like that, and, and he's, he's, he's having a great time, and they love him. He's kind of like their homeboy, right? And, and they're just loving each other, right? And it's fun, and he's, he's one of he's, you know, they don't even see color. It's awesome. It's kind of like that, but it's actually not even like that. It's like this. Every nation, tongue, and tribe is sitting at this table. There are probably Asian people. There are probably some North African people. There are probably some Greeks and some Romans, There may be some Turks, Middle Eastern, probably no Canadians at this point in time. That's what the table was more like. Here's the point. To a religious Pharisee Jew, they were dogs. They were dogs. They were Gentiles. That's the picture that we need to see here. Secondly, the shocking thing here is not that Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles, but as a Jew, that he started eating with them in the first place. So here's a little bit of history and background, and some of you, I'm sure, know this, but we need to see this. Every first century Jew was raised to keep 
the laws that God had laid down for them. And one of these sets of laws were what were called the clean laws, right? Uh, God gave these laws to people, the people of Israel, so that they would appreciate that they needed, listen, to be ceremonially clean to come into his presence. Because the idea was he wanted them to understand, listen, there is a big difference between us. I'm a holy and righteous God. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all of you. And so something has to be done about this so that you can be in my presence. Because here's the deal. I want you in my presence. I want you to come home and be back with me. But something has to happen. So he originally gave these these clean laws, these ceremonial laws. They were incredibly complex, incredibly complex. Uh, But essentially, they consisted of foods that were considered unclean. Think bacon here, right? I mean, that's the number one. You think bacon, pork, right? Bad. You know, some of the things people look at, oh, God was such an ogre. Like, why would he forbid them from eating bacon, right? Well, one of the reasons was is because it was hard to care for pork back in those days, and you could actually die from eating it. So it wasn't just that he was an ogre, but there was a point behind them being ceremony. There was also things you can't touch. You can't be near a dead body and touch it. You, you, you can't be near a woman if it's that time of the month. And I mean, seriously, these were some of the, the, the clean laws that, that you could definitely not be near a leper. Right? So if you, if you were touched or near a person like that, then you were considered ceremonially unclean, and you couldn't come in to the presence of God. And these, most of these laws, of course, are found in the book of Leviticus, which is why when we do our annual readings, most of you are so excited to get there, right? <laughs> to get to that particular book. It's just so awesome. It actually is. It's actually awesome to understand why God did this. But here's the point. The idea was that God wants them to know that to be in his presence, they need to be cleaned. They need to be cleaned. But the real deep idea was that God wanted them, just like with the law, the Ten Commandments, he wanted them to know you can't do it. That's what he wanted us to realize, them to realize, No matter how hard you try, something's going to come up, and you're just not going to be clean. And so at the end of the day, he wanted us all to understand, you need my help. I need to help you. Come to me. Turn to me. And of course, the answer that he gave to us is Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is the answer to all of that. And and most of you will remember when we studied uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Go read it. You know, Jesus said just before he launches into the major teachings of, of the law and how it's actually been fulfilled in him, he says, I didn't come to, what, to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it, not end it. Very important thing. But he came to fulfill it. And when he finishes Matthew 5, 6, and 7, when he finishes this great sermon up on the mountain, what's the very thing, first thing that happens when he comes down from the mountain? After he's preached to all of his disciples what the characteristics of the kingdom are to look like, what it will be, what what you will be if you are truly a disciple of his and how you will then live. Does anybody remember the story about the very first thing that happens when he comes down from the mountain? A leper walks up to him. This is so intentional by the Holy Spirit to place that there. The leper walks up to him and says this, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleaned. 
was cleansed. I'll tell you what, more than his leprosy was cleansed, right? He called him Lord. His heart was cleansed at the very same time. This was a totally shocking thing because here's what happened. Not only did his disciples come down from the mountain with him, but the Pharisees were following Jesus, right? And they were spying on him. Now, this leper did something wrong. When this leper approached Jesus, he should have been running up going, unclean, unclean, but he wasn't. That was what you were supposed to do in that culture in that day if you were a leper or if you were an unclean person in the, in, the, in the culture for whatever reason, you should be calling that out. He didn't do that. And the Pharisees are like, this guy is apparently the Messiah. He claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And, and he, did you see what he just did? He touched the leper. That's the whole point. In the Old Testament, the law was about being unclean and the fact that we can do nothing about it. And so we need to stay away from those things that are unclean and dirty because they will infect us. But the truth of the gospel is with Jesus Christ, we are clean. We are cleansed. And therefore, we are actually given the ability to do exactly what Jesus does, not literally in the hand, but, but to go to people and touch people with the love of Christ and bring healing and salvation and cleanliness to their lives. And so that's the picture. Here's the point. Peter should have known all of this. He should have known all of this. In in Acts chapter 11, here's an amazing story. We read this, that during his early ministry, he went back to Jerusalem. He actually went back to Jerusalem to tell the people in Jerusalem, listen, Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I can't believe it. I've actually seen the Holy Spirit fall on them. The leaders in Jerusalem say this. This is what we read anyway. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So Peter went up to Jerusalem. The circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. This has already happened, right? Now, what Peter does, he then tells them what happened, though. He goes, guys, I got a reason. There's a reason why I did this. You got to understand, not only... Did I see the Holy Spirit fall on them? But listen, also before that, God gave me this vision. And God had given Peter a vision of a sheet coming down out of the sky, right? The sheet came down out of the sky and was full of what? Animals. Meat, including some bacon, right? It was animals who were all considered part of the unclean category. And they're all coming down. And, and if you look in your Bibles, if you have a red-letter edition Bible... You're going to notice something interesting. The words that, ha- that uh, Peter actually hears are in red letters, meaning they are by whom? Jesus. And the words that he hears are this, kill Peter and eat. Jesus is telling him, kill and eat. And this, this is before something very amazing happens. Peter replies and says, oh, no, Lord, I can't do that. Nothing unclean or common has ever entered my mouth. Now, that's a pretty bold statement, ever in his life. He's a pretty good Pharisee, isn't he? He's a pretty good Jew. <laughs> he really is. And Jesus doesn't question him about that. But he does say this, what God has made clean, do not call common. So what he, his response to him. Now, here's the really crazy thing. It happens three times. <laughs> the sheet thing happens three times to Peter, right? Three times the sheet's there, the animals are there, Kill and eat, Peter. I can't do that. They're unclean. I'm clean. 
Three times this has to happen before Peter gets it. Peter is this, this trilogy of trilogy guys, isn't he? It's pretty standard for Peter to be this kind of guy. It's really encouraging to me, quite frankly, that he is this kind of guy. He's had this problem for some time. He denies Jesus how many times? Three times. Three times. Jesus says, like, you know, he goes, I, doesn't matter who will, you know, like, leave you or forsake you. I will die for you. I will never. Before the rooster crows, Peter, you'll deny me three times. It happens, right? Jesus has to ask him three times as he's restoring him. After his resurrection, he goes to Peter three times and he says, do you agape me, Peter? Agape meaning fatherly love, the love of the Father of God. Do you love me, Peter? And Peter goes, I phileo you, which means brotherly love. And then Jesus says, feed my sheep. And that has to happen three times. And Peter's like, oh, man, what, what doesn't, he, doesn't he get about my answer? And Peter's, God's, Jesus is like, feed my sheep, Peter. And now three times here, the same thing, the same thing. But the result of this previous story about the, the, the sheep, the animals and the sheets was this. The result was Peter listened to this vision, and immediately after this happens, the third time, and he finally clicks, and he goes, okay, kill and eat. Immediately after that, the Holy Spirit brings three men to Peter's house, asking him to go off with them to preach the gospel to more Gentiles, Cornelius. And people come to faith in Christ. Goes on in the story that we're reading today in verse 13 to say this As all of this is going on in that room, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter, so that even Barnabas, even Barnabas, was led astray by their hypocrisy. So, what's the result of doing the absolute opposite of what you know God's word and truth says? <laughs> Twice in this verse, we see the, the, the reaction. We, t- we see what it is. Hypocrisy. Peter knew that the clean laws, the food, dress, and ceremonial laws were just Jewish customs that were now over with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this knowledge of these things hadn't gone, hadn't gone directly from his head to his heart. He wasn't walking the talk yet. I find this so ridiculously encouraging, don't you? I mean, even with the three times, Jesus, three times, three times, three times, I just like, oh, there's hope for me, right? There's hope for me. I don't know how many times, like, I keep saying, oh, Lord, I've confessed this maybe 1,100 times. You know, you're forgiven, Glenn. Go and sin no more. Like, this is so encouraging, isn't it? Is anybody encouraged to see these guys going through these kind of problems? But hypocrisy is a big deal here. He's the worst, really, of Christians. This is the worst of us. And people who are not Christians or in the public, this is when they look at us and they go, oh, gosh, you guys call yourselves Christians? Really? And we keep seeing this, and you say one thing, but you do the other. He's a hypocrite. And then you look at the devastating consequences of his hypocrisy, his actions getting up from the table, pulling away from the table, they gave power to the James gang. They gave power to them to act the same way, and sadly, even Paul's trusted friend and partner in the gospel, Barnabas, is led astray. So listen, we, we need to learn something here from Peter. When, when we do stuff like this, when we say one thing and then we're hypocritical, or when we pull away from tables, when we pull away from the Lord, from the church, from the gospel, we're, 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 we're impacting everyone around us, our children in our homes, 
our brothers and sisters in the church, and certainly those who are outside of Christ in the community. It's a difficult thing. So what caused this hypocrisy? What caused it? What's the germ there? Well, Paul named it again. It's fear. Fear of man. We saw that two weeks ago in the first part of Galatians uh, 1 to 10. Fear of man. So now imagine once again with me, like I, I stop and think about these things. What in the world was Peter afraid of? He's a capital A apostle. Jesus says three times, you know, three times. You know, he, he knows Jesus. He's preached a sermon. He's seen thousands and thousands of people come to faith in Christ. What in the world is he so afraid of when he sees these guys arriving at the door? Well, I don't know. We don't, they don't tell us, but I, I'm a pastor. I'm a leader in, in the church. I'm, I'm a member of the body of Christ. There are things that I fear from time to time. Maybe, maybe, maybe he was afraid that people would stop coming to his church, these guys, when he goes home, and maybe he was afraid that some of these people would, would leave, wouldn't listen to him, wouldn't want him to be the preacher on any given Sunday. Maybe some of them were financial supporters, right? Well, in that case, maybe. I don't know. But I think we can relate. Maybe he was concerned about position and prestige. Maybe he was concerned about being invited to the best parties. They were part of the circumcision party, right? Okay, that's a bad joke. But, I mean, he's afraid of man. He's afraid of losing something. But here's the part that really disturbs me, and I think it should disturb you. He's not afraid at all of what the Gentiles at the table he just walked away from are going to think. Isn't that sad? He's not afraid of that. So there's got to be something that he's thinking he's going to lose, some benefit, something that's important to him. He's prideful, isn't he? He's prideful. And that's what's going on here. He's still this good old Jewish boy who thinks that these Gentiles were unclean and therefore inferior. They're lesser. I'm not concerned if they think badly of me, but I am if these guys think badly of me. How horrible is that? Well, let's not pick on them too deeply, okay? Because <laughs> it comes back to roost. I think the story is so intentional in many ways. It's part of the buildup to Paul's great conclusion that's coming shortly. It's the same thing that happened in the book of Romans. If you go to the book of Romans and you read chapters 1, 2, and 3, it's amazing how he builds up to the verse in chapter 22 and 23 in chapter 3. His buildup is, he starts off and he's basically like, okay, if you're a Gentile, let me show you all the ways that you are a sinner. <laughs> and, and he just rips through it. He starts actually with the Jewish people and he says, look, you, you had the law, you had the Torah, you had, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you had God, you know, you had the Exodus, you had all these things. You're guilty. You're sinners. And then he goes through the whole same thing with everyone else. And so you get to the point where he says this in chapter 3, verse 23, 22 and 23. He says, for there is no distinction with God. Plays no favorites. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, demonstrating that both Jew and Gentile have equally sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. And, and that's the point that he's getting to shortly. In a few weeks, we'll get there in Galatians 3.28. It's a very famous verse. It's often taken out of context, and we'll get to that when we get there. But this is what this verse says. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, guys. <laughs> there is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the synthesis statement of this passage, but also of his letter. 
This is it. It is that there is level ground. I love this. There is level ground at the cross. Amen? It's level, guys. None of us come to the cross a little better than the next. None of us do. Not before God. We all come with the same burden, the need to be forgiven. It's level ground, and it's a beautiful thing. It's incredibly fair. Paul is primarily addressing, as I've said, the recovering Pharisees in all of us but in particular those Judaizers in Galatia at the time. His message is brief. His message is, you Jewish men have always discriminated against Gentiles, against slaves, and against women, treating them as inferior, unclean, or unworthy, and Jesus has come to say, no more. Stop it. It's over. So it's interesting to me anyway, as I look at these, these passages, these verses, that, that the word table is not mentioned once here. It's not mentioned. They're eating together at a table, but the word is not mentioned. And I want to highlight that to you because I believe it is really the heart of the story here, and that is that everyone is welcome at this table. Everyone is supposed to be welcomed at this table. Every nation, every tongue, every tribe, rich or poor, men and women, and there it is. We don't even see the word used, but there it is nonetheless. It's the table. Now, it's an interesting picture because throughout the whole Old Testament, the table has been a place of incredible significance. I mean, suffice to say, even in the creation of the world, the Lord gave each one of us as human beings the need to eat daily, right? We've been, we've been made so that we have to eat, and frankly, it seems that based on not just our culture, but it seems like we need to do that two, maybe three times a day. And so God actually designed us with the need to be together, to eat together, and probably at a table, right? Definitely at a table, as we'll see, three times a day. It has very significant meaning as well. For the Jew, eating was a cultural event. Many of you have visited Europe, not just for Jewish people, but for European people. Eating is like, this is it. This is the best party you could ever come to. This is it. Forget board games and forget watching the football game. This is the best thing that you can do is get together and start eating like at 7.30 and you're not finished until 10. And you're just eating and enjoying each other's company and together. What we eat with and, and whom we eat with says a lot about who we are in those cultures. And even I think it should to us today. The Jewish people personified that, that feeling and that idea. For them, keeping the food laws was one way that they demonstrated that they belonged together to God as well. One commentator, I, I don't know who it was, but I, I lost the reference, but he said this, so I, I copied it and put it on screen for you. In Judaism, table fellowship means fellowship before God. That's how they saw it. For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in the meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house has spoken over the unbroken bread. Mealtimes, therefore, were sacred to Jewish people. And that's one of the reasons why they responded so negatively when Jesus was eating with whom? Tax collectors and sinners. (laughs) They didn't think that was right. So we should be a little, I think, compassionate to the early Jewish believers, because this is a big shift for them. But hear me when I say this. For a lot of you, for a lot of us, when we come to faith in Christ, there's a big shift too. Some of us just don't recognize how big the shift is, because many of us don't recognize we actually are prejudiced. We actually have the kind of people that we'd rather be eating with versus those we'd rather not be eating with. We all have that problem, don't we? 
Please somebody nod. <laughs> Just confess. I think we have that problem. The whole table concept, of course, has one more side to it, doesn't it? One more side to it. Do you remember what Jesus did on the night before he was betrayed and crucified? Of course you do. He had his last supper, his final meal, the Passover meal, the last Passover meal. (laughs) At a table, his table, that table, the table that he asked us to remember him at. It's called the communion table. (laughs) Communion is a, a word that we get from the Latin that literally means sharing in common. In the Greek, we've already heard it before in this particular, in our studies in the last several months, is the word koinonia, which means the same thing, having things in common, sharing together. This is how Jesus wished to be remembered, his life, death, burial, and resurrection for our sins every time we share a meal at a table together. Every time. Guys, it's why we bow our heads, good Christians do anyway, with their kids at least, right? And we give thanks for the food. It's why we do it. So a couple of quick applications. I really want to hammer this home so that we, we get this. For all of us in this room today, how, how do we, I mean, how do we translate this? What happened in that day at that table with Peter and Paul and all the rest of the people in the room? How do we translate it? I, I've got it two ways. How Number one, how do we dishonor the table by pulling away from the table? And then how do we honor and gather to the table? Well, number one, how do we dishonor? Well, we pull away from the table, don't we? We dishonor the table when we pull away. Why do we pull away from the table? Well, (laughs) offenses. You know, somebody hurt me or offended me. We leave churches because we're offended, don't we? We pull away from the table. We leave small group. We we pull away for a while because, you you know, people were actually, you know, trying to hold me accountable, or I was afraid of accountability, or or I was afraid of of criticism, or, you know, people weren't really listening to me, you know, um, you know, this, this person I've never met before was there, and it was like it was all about them, you know, or whatever it might be, we pull away, right? There's also pride, right? Like there's nationalistic, cultural, racial, and even gender pride, and oftentimes, of course, we're drawn away by the world. But we're pulling away from what? We're pulling away from the table. Christian in the room, hear me when I say this, pulling away from the table is is what this passage is about. And in this particular case, like think about it. Paul got in his face, didn't he? We're not used to that in the church, are we? Most of you would not really like it. If I came in here today and one of you was being this hypocritical and I walked up to Wayne Penner and I said, buddy, dude, what are you doing? In front of all of you. How would you feel about that? <laughs> That's what happened. It's okay. We're good, bud. Right? We're good. Okay. I thought I'd pick on somebody who's innocent. <laughs> At least for now. Yeah, exactly. That's what's supposed to happen in the body of Christ. It's supposed to happen if we actually care and love with each other. But you know what? You don't like it. I don't like it when people hold me accountable, ask questions, tell me I'm a hypocrite. I don't like it either. None of us do. That's okay. We have theological things that we pull away over. Wine versus juice. You know, like, I mean, church polity, how we lead, who leads, who doesn't lead. Oh, my goodness. 
Like we could just go on all day about that kind of nonsense, couldn't we? Well, I don't go to that church anymore because of this. Or, I'm, you know, it, it, I, I don't do this at the church anymore because we pull away from serving. We, pull, we, we unfriend people on Facebook. Well, yeah, that happens, doesn't it? There's so many different ways we unfriend and pull away from each other. Here's a biggie. We gather with friends, whether Christian or non, and we never share Jesus at the table. I can't tell you how many times I've gone after church, and please hear me, if you ever invite me for lunch afterwards, which would be really nice if somebody did. I'm very lonely. <laughs> but if we do, sometimes when we go for lunch, and like, I know I'm, I'm the elephant in the room at the table, but nobody talks about the message, nobody talks about Jesus, nothing happens. We're just talking about life again, you know, like it's all over, right? We had a couple over for dinner a week and a half ago or a week a bit ago, and it was so refreshing and encouraging. All we talked about, actually, I think at one point, both wives were kind of like, okay, we'll leave them to it because it's just never going to end, right? But it was Jesus, the church, the bride, what's happening here, there, and everywhere. It was encouraging and exciting. Do you stop doing that when you're at the table with non-Christians? Instead, it's like, cheers to us. Yeah, aren't we awesome? Climbed another mountain, did another trail. Woohoo! Nothing. There's a reason why you're at this table. Share Jesus. Share why we want to pray. Like, do it. Lastly, on that point, we've got to be careful about not being hypocrites, right? I mean, coming to church on a Sunday morning and it's all Jesus, lovely, everything's good, and then we leave here and it's like nothing, right? Same thing in missional community group. Show up and look good in missional community group and then become a hypocrite. How do we honor and gather at the table? Here's a couple of good practice and habits. Practice good table habits. When we come to the Lord's table each Sunday, we need to be openly confessing and repenting together. Amen? Come prepared to break bread on Sunday, to come to this table equally with your brothers and sisters. Today when we do that, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for all of us in this room. Me too, all of us. That if there is an offense, if there's somebody we've been pulling away from, something, guys, you know, you do it now or do it later, but repent. Confess to one another. Here's how I'm feeling, and, and this is what I've done, and I'm sorry for that. And listen, that's why we also call all of you to missional community groups, is to practice good table habits. That's why all of our missional community groups eat together. We have a potluck. Because we want to have good table habits. We want to practice being together and confessing with one another and being this way. And, and here's another one. Refuse to pull away, but instead lean in. Oh, man, I know how difficult it is. But refuse the urge to pull away from the church, from missional community group, from your brothers and sisters. Instead, lean in and stay in step together. Finally, how about invite our friends to experience Jesus' table? That would be a good practice. Well, actually, there's one more. How about we pray at the table? How about we pray at the table? Two more points just to close quickly. I'll try to get through them quickly. Number one, Paul's justification. Why did he do this? Well, verse 14 says this, but when I saw that their conduct, look, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? I said this before, Paul's doing this because he loves his brother. He also sees the impact this is having on the church and those that are there. He's going, this is not good. The word in step there is one word in the Greek. It's the word orthopedeo. Can you imagine what English word we get from that? Orthopedic. 
It means straight walking. But Paul, Paul's whole purpose here was like, buddy, get in back in step with Jesus. You're out of step. You're stepping into the law again. Get back in step with Jesus. And that was his heart. He loves him. And he's trying to bring him back. He's trying to bring him back. And, and of course, Barnabas too and everyone else in the room. Because you know what? Here's the deal. They've all backslid at this point. They're all pulling away. They're all... And, and he wants them to stay in step with Jesus Christ. And that uh, leads to our third point in verses 15 and 16, which is our justification. And we'll only touch on this lightly today because it gets picked up next week. But it says this, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So this is the first time in the letter that he uses this word, justification by faith. He will build on this, as I say, next week's passage and the rest of the letter, but this is the one thing that should be highlighted today. First, as I've said early in the series, we must know what the gospel is. It's important that we know it. We can hear the word, give mental assent to it, but then go on walking far from the line. The gospel is God's mercy, grace, and power to save us from the point of initial repentance in Christ and coming to Christ until the day we die. We need it every day. We need the gospel. And Peter is a prime example then of our need of the gospel all the time, isn't he? That's what Peter's giving him again is the gospel. Peter, Forget trying to be a good Jew and calling everybody else to come back under the law. Stay in step with Jesus Christ. And so now here's why Paul brings up our justification at this point in the story. Peter and all of the Jewish buddies that he has were still under the false impression that they were justified, made acceptable before God by their works of cleanliness, weren't they? They were still falling into that and believing that. And so for you and I as Christians, J.I. Packer gives a great understanding of the word justify. I'll give this to you today. We'll unpack it more next week. He says this, to justify in the Bible means this, to declare of a man or woman on trial that he or she is not liable to any penalty. I would say not anymore liable to any penalty, but is entitled to all of the privileges due to those who have kept the law. Justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence to condemnation, but that of acquittal, and look at this word, legal immunity. I need to read that over and over. I don't know about you, but I need to read that over and over again because I don't act on a daily basis like, it's not that I'm immune to sin, but I have immunity. Completely forgiven. Totally. Do you realize that? Has that grasped your heart? If you're a Christian here today, that you are totally totally forgiven, completely, and so forth to the end. The good news about this story is this. Peter must have learned this lesson. He definitely learned this lesson because some 15 to 20 years later, he writes these words that he records in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. It says this, but you, now look at these words. He's speaking to you and I, Christian. You are a chosen race. Not one races. You're a chosen race, all of us together in this room, every nation, tongue, and tribe. A royal priesthood. We're priests of the living God. A holy nation, one nation, a people 
for his own possession. And here's the call. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I think Peter got the point, didn't he? He got the lesson, and this is what he's calling us to. I want to close uh, with the words of uh, an eminent theologian by the name of Johnny Cash. And he said this, As sure as night is dark and day is light, I keep you on my mind both day and night, and happiness I have known proves that it's right. Because you're mine, I walk the line. I think he could have also said, because you're mine and I'm yours, I walk the line. I started off and gave you this line, you can walk a very straight line and still be out of step with Christ. How about we turn it around and say this, walk the gospel line and keep in step with Christ. Amen? Amen. Pray with me, would you?